Welcome to the EFC Podcast. I'm Karen Stiller. Dr. Amy Patterson is a Christian ethics consultant with the Salvation Army Ethics Center in Winnipeg. We interviewed her for the January-February 2018 issue of Faith Today, but we just couldn't quite get enough of her expertise. So we invited Amy to join us today to talk more about sexual ethics in churches particularly. Welcome, Amy. Thanks, Karen. I'm happy to dialogue with you about this. First of all, I know part of your work is that you help Salvation Army officers think about sexual ethics. Can you tell us more about that, what you're doing, and why? Sure. So um, it happens in a number of different uh, ways. One would be um, teaching officers in formal courses at Booth University College here in Winnipeg. Another is um, the the um, College for Officer Training, which is really the seminary for the Salvation Army. There's formal ethics courses there. And in both of those settings, I'm, I might speak about human sexuality. More recently, though, the Ethics Center has taken it upon itself to create a kind of informal study and discussion series on human sexuality and Christian ethics. So this is meant to be a small group setting uh, where people get together to uh, about for, for about eight weeks to talk about all kinds of matters to do with sexuality and gender. And part of this um, relates to sexual violence, but there's also uh, more positive kinds of questions being asked and explored. Um, things like, you know, it's it, what does it mean to be an embodied sexual being? And what's the good of that? So we like to have uh, both sort of the positive examination of sexuality so that we're all on the same page, that this is a good thing, that we are sexual creatures. But we also explore those nitty-gritty questions that are hard to talk about in church. And uh, our intention through offering this is not only to help um, a group of small, a small, sorry, not small people, but a small group of people work together to talk more openly about this, but we hope that they'll be able to take that home with them to their own environments. These people come um, via video conference from all over the country and they get to know each other and they, they speak in confidentiality, but they're also welcome to take home what they've learned and have conversations where they are. And so, and where they are would be um, like Salvation Army um, centers or congregations uh, where uh, the leading person needs to be aware of dynamics of, um, you know, that could come up between themselves and someone they were counseling or they're within their congregation. Is that where you're going with this? It could be that. Um, we we accept anyone associated with the Salvation Army in the country to take this with us. So it could be someone who's, you know, at the, at the upper echelons of Salvation Army leadership. It could be someone who's a volunteer for a thrift store. Um, so we invite anyone. And some people will want to take this back to talk about this with their leadership team. Some of them will want to take this back and talk about it with their families. We don't know what they'll do with it. But we want in the Salvation Army, we want our people to have a, a greater sense of comfortability and safety in talking about things like human sexuality and gender. Okay, let's um, really drill down to, say, a church setting where, um, you know, a pastor might be in a counseling relationship or something with a parishioner and, um, you know, maybe... 
a line is crossed or the line, you know, comes into view anyway, um, how can we help better prepare people going into ministry for that kind of dynamic that can happen in all kinds of settings? So I do tell, I do a lot of preventative uh, Mm -hmm. teaching because uh, I think, you know, if you can prevent something, then you don't have to deal with something horrible. So much better. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, I often tell people going into this kind of conversation that we have to acknowledge from the start that the church can never guarantee that it's going to be a completely safe space. Okay. And I can think of two reasons for this. One is that we don't know how um, other people feel safe. We don't know what makes them feel safe. Mm -hmm. And if we don't know that, we can't be intentional about making them safe. But probably more importantly than that, we have limited power when it comes to create um, creating and maintaining safety um, because we don't have complete control over everyone in the church. Right. All that said, we're still responsible to make church the safest environment it can be. So some of the work is going to be very visible. You know, we might talk about having um, offices with windows in their doors so that there's never anything that's completely private or, or secret going on behind those doors. Um, you know, not having one-on-one meetings when there's no one else in a church building, that kind of thing that, you know, some of this is, is common sense. But we also like to talk about some of the measures that are not so visible, um, things that aren't necessarily seen, but things that are done um, perhaps behind the scenes or perhaps aren't even recognized as preventative measures, but really do offer some kind of preventative work. And what would some of those be, Amy? Yeah, so some are for the pastor or for the minister, and some are for the congregation. So I can think of a number that um, the past, a number of things that the pastor can do to set an example, but also to uh, understand the the power that he or she has within the congregation. And so the first thing I tell people coming um, into and out of seminary is to be self-aware and to know that you have power and hold yourself accountable for that power. Now, we know that power isn't necessarily a bad thing, Mm -hmm. right? We need power in a leader. But the purpose of a pastor's power is to be able to serve others under their care. Okay. So, you know, often people are going to come to them already vulnerable for some reason, perhaps because they've, you know, been been sexually assaulted or violated in some way. But if they're already vulnerable, it's really dangerous for a pastor to not understand the power they hold in that situation. It's I think it's just as dangerous as if you're um, behind the wheel of a car and you don't know how to drive. Okay. You really need to know how to deal with that inequity when it comes to the power relationship, the power dynamic there. And that can come out in a, like in a, I'm imagining um, a counseling situation or I'm, I imagine, I'm imagining a clergy person alone, you know, in their office, even with a window, Um, there there can still be uh, inappropriate, pardon me, vibes being exchanged or something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so part of being self-aware is to understand that I'm a certain kind of person and the person in front of me is another certain kind of person. I need to be aware not only of who I am and the power I hold, but I need to be aware of their own vulnerability and how they might interpret any actions I take towards them. So 
it's very awkward when you're in a one-on-one conversation. And I think I, you know, in the article I spoke about, you know, sometimes wanting to give people a hug or to just show that physical sign of affection and, and support when it might not be received uh, in that way. Okay. It might be received as sort of crossing a line. Yeah. So part of this is getting to know people um, because rules are not always going to serve your context. Sometimes they're very important. But sometimes if you know a person better um, than the rule tells you who they are, it's important to be able to sort of, um, in those kinds of settings, offer something like a hug. You might ask, is it okay, okay. if I give you a hug? Or is it okay if I... Um, touch you on the shoulder. Uh, And we also need to understand, I think, and this is not always a popular opinion, but um, sometimes it is important for a woman to be counseled by a woman or for a man to be counseled by a man. Yeah. Not always, perhaps, but in some cases it is. Yeah. And so to also build a support team around you, a pastoral care support team um, made of both women and men uh, is helpful because then you can provide training to a number of people who would be able to step into that kind of situation, make it less awkward for the person who is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. After um, we did the interview with you, that was printed in uh, Faith Today, and we also had a blog that was sort of connected around the hashtag Me Too topic. Um, I, we actually got an email from a woman whose daughter uh, was... Um, she said groomed and seduced by an associate pastor who had been mentoring and supervising her. The church, when this was disclosed, the church leadership insisted upon calling it an affair and uh, basically disciplined both the pastor and this woman who had been under his care. And uh, the family subsequently left the church and are really um, still definitely healing from this experience. And the point of her reaching out was to say that they're just the church does not do this well in terms of identifying, yeah, power imbalance and you know who is the victim and so on, and also the process for dealing with it when things do go wrong. And so uh, I'm wondering about process. So if lines do get crossed and people do get hurt and it is named, you know, as sexual harassment correctly. Do churches have good processes and how can we do better at that? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak to, you know, whether all churches and all denominations have good processes. But um, what bothers me most is when processes are compromised for the sake of the reputation either of the leader or of the denomination itself or even the congregation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We tend to re-victimize people for the sake of our own interests. And and that's just plain wrong. Yeah. Um, so if someone's making an accusation, uh, you really do need to take it seriously. And, and we're in an era where we're only now starting to come to terms with the fact that it's really hard to come out and make an accusation because it hurts. And it's really hard to make that accusation stick because we place a huge burden of proof on the person who is making the accusation. Um, and it's a really hard thing to prove yeah. in some cases. Yeah. Well, especially when it's it's to do with feelings. I mean, <laughs> how do you prove feelings? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
again, I bring in the idea of interpretation. Okay. Ethics is more than just rules. It's about interpreting the world around you. And it's re it's a, it's tough work. It's really tough work. And so if someone is, um, perhaps not assaulted by a leader, but perhaps in some way exploited by a leader, that can be difficult to interpret. What's behind this action? Mm -hmm. You know, are they flirting with me? Yeah. Or was that comment inappropriate? Or am I just making too much of it? Right, right. right. And I think most, uh, I mean, in this case, I'm, I'm thinking about women, but I completely understand and concede that it's not always women who are victimized. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, when it is a woman, I think sometimes our impulse is to make it our own fault. And, um, you know, think that we, well, we did something wrong, or, oh, I'm misinterpreting. And it almost feels like that's our natural response at first. Yeah, and I think often it's the case, and not always, of course, but often it's the case where a younger woman is involved with an older leader, mm -hmm. um, older than them anyway. And so they're in a position of um, you know, it, they might be a little bit naive. They might not understand what's going on. They might interpret things in, in, in a way that's perhaps, um, you know, maybe this is a sign that the pastor really loves me. Maybe he wants, you know, to, to get into a relationship with me. And, you know, those kinds of ideas that, that people who are maybe being exploited come up with can really impede their judgment as to what to do in this situation and how to interpret it. Yeah. I'm thinking, Amy, of the, uh, this made the news early this year. Andy Savage is an American pastor who, you know, publicly acknowledged in front of his church that when he was 22, uh, there was a sexual harassment allegation. Well, it was true. Um, a 17 year old woman at the time, and she has since came forward and shared that, uh, they had had this encounter and uh, his church gave him a standing ovation. And it was yeah. basically the standing ovation heard around the world to a certain extent, because people were saying, how can the church give this man a standing ovation? And um, I'm wondering if you could comment on that, because the, the victim acknowledged that she felt re-victimized when the church applauded this yeah. pastor. Um, it just feels like everything was done wrong in that situation. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing here um, is really a, just a, a long chain of the abuse of power. Mm. So it starts in a car, you know, the youth pastor who's, yeah, as you say, 22, is driving home, um, a teenager um, after some kind of event stops and, well, tells her to perform a, a sexual act. Um, and then after the act is complete, um, tells her never to say anything to anybody. Yeah. So she's confused. She, um, finds it difficult to tell anybody, but she does tell the senior pastors in the group and they hush it up and tell her not to say anything to anybody to protect him and to protect their own reputations. So then that's the, the next abuse. It's only when she makes this more public within the church that they finally do let this this man Andy Savage go, but they don't explain what they're doing and why they're letting him go, and so that revictimizes her because there's all sorts of questions about what she's done wrong, and it's just gossip. Yeah, nobody knows the situation. She's saying one thing; they're not saying anything, and really, he's able to go and and 
find another place to minister. And he ends up ministering as a teaching pastor in a megachurch. And along the way, no one's ever reported him to the police. No one's ever um, held him accountable within ministry. Uh, No one's ever questioned him on this. Yeah. So then then he goes and and they have this, you know, following the, the, I guess it was a blog or something that, that this woman now 20 years later puts up. Um, they, you know, in, in light of this accusation, they have this very public confession planned and you have the senior pastor there saying, well, you know, it's, it's really important that the person who, who feels victimized here offers their forgiveness. You know, it's right. And the person is not part of that church. They're not in the crowd, Yeah, but they're being spoken to as if you know, they're the ones who are causing the problem here. Yeah. And it, oh my yeah, goodness. And you, really have, you have worship leaders who are, who are saying, you know, you, you know, you're, we're all forgiven by God, no matter what we've done. And yeah. of course that's true. Right. But is that the time and place to be talking about that? Yeah. I mean, it seems like a, like a case study in how to do <laughs> everything does. wrong. <laughs> oh my goodness. And I, you know, so when they, I heard of the standing ovation, I, I thought to myself, I, I, I don't think there's an excuse for it, but I understand how it could happen where the church would like, yay, you know, you're being so transparent and applauding him. And, but the, in the applause is implied, you know, kind of an instant forgiveness and, uh, uh, an affirmation and for the victim, the exact opposite. So yeah, it was yeah. so um, so bl- badly executed. The whole thing. Yeah, I don't think we're very good in the church um, at recognizing that forgiveness doesn't mean um, that justice shouldn't happen. Right. right? So right. we have someone who's being forgiven for something that the congregation doesn't really know about. Um, I think he called it a, a sexual incident. Right. Um, right. He didn't explain exactly what had happened. I don't think he even um, admitted that he knew all of the wrong he had done or didn't didn't um, express that he understood why this was still an issue for the other party here. Um, But in, in light of this very limited confession, the church is more concerned with forgiving their leader than they are seeking justice or holding him accountable for what has been done in the past. And, for something he's never been held accountable for until now. Yeah, and again, this the lack of care um, that you know is, seems to be implied in that toward the victim. Um, so it it I'm glad to hear you say that you in your teaching and work that you're trying to prevent <laughs> these things from happening in the first place, right? Which is yeah. really uh, obviously so so important. So if you, Amy, were, um, if you were speaking, let's say at a conference to a wide range of denominations and church leaders, what would you say to them would be the bare minimum um, uh, regulations or restrictions or guidelines is a better word, I guess, that they need to have in place in their congregations? What do they need to be thinking about right now? Well, I'm not a fan, I'm sorry. Yes. Regulations are important. There's no doubt about it. But as an ethicist, I'm much more concerned with the culture we create um, outside of even regulations. So if we're not prepared to hold people to account, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. If we're not prepared 
to care for victims, that's a problem. If we don't have that kind of culture set up, it's a problem. One way to set that, that culture up is to be able to talk more freely and openly about sex. We need to talk about sex when we preach. We need to talk about sex and sexual violence when we do Bible studies. We okay. need to talk about the biblical heroes and their stories about sexual violence mm -hmm. and the consequences that come of that. We need to understand that this is not a new problem and that scripture has something to say about it and not just with the rules and regulations yes. that scripture might, might um, encourage. I think we also need to talk about it because if we have a sense of openness about this topic, it's a very sensitive topic. And of course, we have to be sensitive in our conversation. But if it remains an open topic and people feel comfortable in, in dealing with uh, discussion about sex, I think we're less likely to have people who will try to hide situations of sexual exploitation people who will be less likely to attempt to exploit other people and people who will be more likely to say, listen, here's what happened to me and I don't feel good about it. And what can you do to help me? We have to have that openness before we can have that sense of safety in community. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. <laughs> and it's probably not a very popular thing to be saying right now in light you of go the right ahead. <laughs> And that's part of helping churches feel safer and be safer is to figure out how we care for people who are accused and who offend mm -hmm. in, in sexual ways. We know that um, those people who commit crimes of a sexual nature um, and who serve time coming up back into society, they're more likely to reoffend if they don't have supports in their lives. And if we're not prepared to be churches, the kinds of churches that can provide part of that support, we need to be doing some more self-examination and self-reflection because we want to make people who are vulnerable safer. And this is one way to do it. But we also need to remember that as Christians, we believe that even the worst among us is loved by God yeah, and that we're called to serve our enemies and to pray for our enemies. Yeah. Yes. Well, Amy, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, very much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.